So we have been um, in a short series called, uh, why do we call it Christmas? And we've been answering questions about the Christmas holiday. We've talked about uh, when Jesus was born. We've talked about why we have Christmas trees. Uh, Who's this Santa Claus guy? And this is the last week of our series, and we're going to be talking about uh, a song this morning before we get to our passage in Isaiah. And this is a song that some have said is the greatest orchestral work of all time. And John, I apologize, I actually have the song for you to play in a minute, and I forgot to tell you that. So if, if you can find that, that'd be awesome. It's in the audio panel, Pro Presenter. Um, but we're going to start this story of this song in the 1740s. Uh, in the 1740s in the United States, uh, Jonathan Edwards was a pastor in the eastern part of the United States. He very famously uh, wrote the sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Uh, George Whitefield and John Wesley were in the United States um, founding Methodism. And the 1730s and the 1740s were what were what's called the first great awakening in um, what was uh, in Britain and the U.S. And this is something that I think it's important for us to understand as we look at Christian history, because we have a tendency to look back on the past and think, you know, today things are terrible. We live in a godless, atheistic, awful society, but back then everybody loved Jesus. And that's not really true. Uh, One of the darkest periods spiritually in American history was right around the American Revolution. Very few people were going to church. Very few people were um, actively seeking the Lord. But a few decades before that, there was this great revival in our country and throughout the colonies and throughout Britain and called the the Great Awakening. At this time, uh, Benjamin Franklin was in his mid-30s. He was inventing stuff. He would be a much older man during the revolution, um, but he's a young man at this point in time. Over in Europe, um, Europe is in the heyday of its um, just the big hair and the powdered wigs and everything you think about when you think about old Europe. And there's a man named George Friedrich Handel. Handel is a composer. And what he does is he writes something called oratorios. Oratorios are orchestral pieces um, that are for a big group of musicians and a choir. Uh, They're kind of like operas, but they don't have a narrative. There aren't characters and a plot line as much in oratorios. But they do have subject matter. And in 1741, he wrote an oratorio called The Messiah. This was... um, written musically by Handel, and Handel had a friend named Charles Jennings who was a lyricist. He was also a wealthy landowner and a patron of the arts. He would give sums of money to Handel and other artists to produce artistic works, and he wrote the lyrics to this oratorio. And most of the lyrics come directly from Scripture, and they they go in three parts. The first part of the Messiah is about the birth of Christ. The second part is about the death and the resurrection of Christ, and then the third part is about Jesus' second coming. 
And what has happened over time is that first part, that Christmas section, has become a very popular piece of music around this holiday. But Jennings didn't just write these lyrics for no reason. He wrote them for a purpose because even in the midst of this great awakening where many people were coming to faith in Christ, there was still an incredibly popular philosophy called deism. Um, If you've studied maybe our founding fathers, you might know that many of them were deists. A deist believes that there is a God, that they look out around them in the world and go, obviously there is a God but he doesn't really care about us. He set the world up like, a, like winding a clock, and then he left. And that's what the deists believed. And Jennings was an active opponent of the deists, and he wrote these words to accompany Handel's music to remind audiences that God is with us, that God is connected to our world, that he is concerned about our lives. And so, did you find it? Sweet. You're awesome. Um, so we're going to listen to a part of the Messiah this morning. Um, I wasn't sure if I wanted to do this, but the kids are going to actually listen to it. So I thought, well, we could do that too. Um, this is um, the... <clears throat> End of scene three of part one, it's called For Unto Us a Child is Born. You'll recognize it. Uh, It's a fugue, which is a a musical uh, style where there's two parts and they're going in opposite directions all the time. It's very complicated. Um, It reminds me of like a rush hour traffic of musical notes, but they never run into each other. It's just perfectly orchestrated. Um, The text comes from the text that Sarah just read for us, uh, and it's about four minutes long. So, um, and the the version that we're going to listen to is actually, this is a cover version. Uh, Handel came out with his version, and then a guy named Mozart, who was about 50 years later, he loved it so much, he reorchestrated it, he made it bigger, and I like it a little better. Um, So this is Mozart's version of Handel's Friend to Us, A Child is Born. Oh, 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 oh,
When this piece came out in 1741, people went nuts. Uh, it's much longer than this, but it was just such an artistic accomplishment. And if you don't like classical music or you're not really, um, you don't really know what you're listening to, it can be just, maybe you don't hear it. But um, for the people that, that were used to this style of music, it was such an accomplishment. Um, but Jennings, Charles Jennings, who wrote the lyrics, he actually told Handel that it, it wasn't good enough for the subject matter. Um, most people disagreed, though. Because what Jennings was concerned about was in this culture where everybody thought, you know, God exists, but he doesn't care about us. He doesn't deal with us. He's not part of our lives. He wanted to communicate to people in the strongest way possible that, no, that's not true. God is intimately aware of what's going on in this world, and he really cares about it. And so the text that he drew from in here is Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. But we're going to back up a little bit to Isaiah chapter 7. You have your Bibles, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 7. And in Isaiah chapter 7, to kind of set the scene, Isaiah is, um, he, he's alive about 600 years before Jesus is born. 
He's a prophet to the nation of Israel. His job is to communicate the word of the Lord to the people of Israel. And at this time in history, Israel has had a civil war. The north, the 10 tribes in the north have separated. They call themselves Israel. And the two tribes in the south call themselves Judah. And Isaiah's ministry is largely to the people of Judah. And he comes to this king, the king of Judah, his name is Ahaz, and he's not really a very godly king. But Ahaz is in trouble because the people in the northern kingdom, the ten tribes in the north, have gotten together with some of their allies and they're going to attack Judah. And so there's a lot of fear in the nation that there's going to be a war. And so Isaiah comes to Ahaz and he tells Ahaz, you know what? This is not going to work. They are, they're going to try to attack, but they are, they're going to fail. God is going to protect you. And then in verse 10 of chapter 7, it says, The Lord spoke again to Ahaz. This is through Isaiah. Ask for a sign from the Lord your God. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. So so God says, I know it's crazy. If you think the people of Israel are going to attack you, you think everything is going uh, against you, and it's obviously going to go bad, but I'm telling you that I'm going to intervene, and I'm going to fix it, and their plans are going to fail, and to prove it to you, ask me for anything. He says, to the depths of the grave or to the highest heavens, just ask me for a sign and I will give it to you. And I think, man, I wish God said that to me. <laughs> like, I wish he's, he threw that out there to me. I feel like Ahaz has got a really great thing going here. But see, Ahaz, he isn't really a follower of God. He's, he kind of He's the king of a nation that's supposedly ruled by God. So he kind of goes through the motions, but he doesn't really trust God. And maybe maybe you know people like this. Maybe you feel like you are this person, that you're kind of marginally religious. It's the Christmas season, so maybe you're going to throw up a prayer or two or go to a service or whatever. And, 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 and this is pretty common. But... In order to appear holy in front of his court, he says in verse 12, But Ahaz replied, I will not ask. I will not test the Lord. Because, see, that sounds pretty, that sounds pretty good. No, 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 I believe. I'm fine. I, I, I don't want to test the Lord. Even though the Lord specifically said, test me. And what Ahaz is doing is he's wearing a mask. He is, he's pretending to have faith in God. He's pretending that he believes. But the reality is his faith is weak. He is not a man that trusts the Lord. And his actions throughout this book, if you read Isaiah, demonstrate that. He needs a sign. He needs help. He needs to have his faith Grown, and God is offering him an opportunity to lean into that and to trust him a little bit more. But in order to look good to, around other people, 
He won't take that opportunity. And I wonder how many of us, because we want to we look holy, we want to look spiritual, we don't want to look weak. We don't take advantage of the things that God is giving us, the opportunities that he is giving us to grow in our faith. Because we won't admit that we need to grow in our faith. So then Isaiah gets pretty upset. He says, listen, house of David, is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive and have a son and name him Emmanuel. So Isaiah says, look, if you're going to play this game with God, here's what God's going to do. God's going to give you a sign, but this is what the sign is going to look like. A virgin is going to have a baby. And that baby is going to be called God with us. Emmanuel means God with us. There's going to be something special about this baby that's going to be born. And this is going to be the sign. But the problem for Ahaz is we know that this sign doesn't actually happen for another 600 years. And so this sign does Ahaz no good. He will be long gone when this comes to pass. And so the very thing that God was handing out to him to strengthen his faith, to give him a little more courage that God was really on his side, he doesn't get to benefit from that because of his pride. And in, in this part of the story, I, I would just encourage us to, to look at our hearts and say, are, we, are there areas in our hearts where we are, we are proud, we are unwilling to humble ourselves because we want to look good in front of other people, where we want to appear spiritual, we want to act like we have it all together, but we know we really don't. And God's... Whoa. I got loud. God's giving us an opportunity to trust him. But God doesn't mess around with Ahaz. He just says, okay, Ahaz, if you don't want to take that, this is what we're going to do. And so Isaiah starts talking about this Emmanuel, this one that would come. And and throughout chapter 7 and chapter 8 and chapter 9 and then even farther into the book, Isaiah keeps coming back to this Messiah, this Savior, this great King that is going to come and fix the problems in the nation of Israel. And so we're going to turn to chapter 9, verse 6, and this is where uh, Handel's song pulled its text. And Isaiah spends some time talking about how the nation's going to be judged if they don't turn, if they don't repent. But then he turns back around to this idea of Emmanuel. And he says in verse 6, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us. And this first part is important because there's a difference between a child being born and a son being given. The child is born. Jesus will be born a child, a baby. But he will also be born the Son of God. The Son of God exists 
eternally before time began with the Father and the Holy Spirit. The Messiah is human, but he's also divine. And then he says, and the government will be on his shoulders. I feel like I bring up politics every Sunday. And I promise I don't do that on purpose. <laughs> I, don't, I don't get into my study and go, how can I talk about politics this week? It just seems to come up a lot. But the fact is, is that Jesus is a king. He is a ruler. And the government will be upon his shoulders. Isaiah says at some point, Jesus is going to run the government. And when we talk about that, we have to, at some point, go like, okay, so what, what is, how does that affect us? If Jesus is a political ruler, then how, do, how should we think about government? How should we think about politics? And, and politics, in, in its most basic sense, comes from the Greek word polis, which means city. And so politics is the care of the city, and it starts with like, you know, safe roads and schools and snow removal, and it goes all the way up to the federal government and the, the things that have to do with our nation. And, I, and then there's two, there's two ways we can look at Jesus and his politics. We can, we can say, you know, because Jesus has a viewpoint, we can look at the Gospels, we can read what he thinks, um, how he thinks people should behave, how they should treat each other. We can take that and we can say, because these are the politics of Jesus, we should engage the culture politically. The church should be about um, then Christians should be engaging in the care of the city. And some people would argue that no, because Jesus really stayed away from the politics of his day, we should use him as an example and stay away from the politics of our day. And there are some very godly people that don't vote and they don't really care about what's going on in the political world because they would say that that's not important. And that's something for every one of us to decide from, for ourselves, how, how we engage with the care of the city, the politics of the city. But I think one thing that we, can, that we should agree on is that while we might choose to be political, the church shouldn't be partisan. There's a difference between that because we oftentimes associate those things very closely. We'll say politics means you're either a Democrat or a Republican, and, and I don't think that that's true at all. I think our politics should flow out of Jesus' politics because, like Isaiah says, the government is on his shoulders. And so when we look at how should the world be run, how should the nation be run, how should the state be run, I think we should look back to Jesus because I think he has some thoughts about it. Then Isaiah says, he will be named Wonderful Counselor. And the, the CSB kind of puts those two things together. You could also argue that those are two separate ideas. And the first thing is wonderful, exceptional, distinguished, amazing, this is used as a name 
for God in Judges 13, 18. This is the story of Samson. Samson hasn't been born yet, but an angel comes to Samson's parents and says, you're going to have a baby and he's going to be a, a great judge. And Samson's dad gets all weird and, and says, okay, well, tell us your name, angel. And the angel says, how can I tell you my name? Because it's wonderful. And uh, so we get this clue that maybe that angel that's talking to Samson's dad is actually the second person of the Trinity, the son. But the idea of being wonderful is this idea of, of just wow. You ever feel that way? Just ever look at something and go like, wow. One thing that, that came to mind as I was reading through this is, and this is a really goofy uh, this shows how goofy I am. But the, uh, I have this, like, I, I like administration and I like organization and stuff. And uh, a month or so ago when we started leading our community, uh, I told my wife that I really would like her to just take care of the food. Like, I, I don't want to deal with that. Um, and I said, you know, you're going to have to, like, email everybody and kind of coordinate that. And she goes, I, I don't do that kind of thing. I'm not, I'm not like that. And I said, I really don't want to have to do it. And, uh, and she said, fine, I'll do it. And so uh, the first, prior to the first week of community group, I got an email and so did everybody else in our community. And it was this really great email from my wife about, hey, everybody, I'm just really excited for community. And this is what I'm thinking for dinner. And please bring a side dish. And I just thought, wow. <laughs> That's good job, Joanna. I was just super impressed with her. And I feel like that's, that's a feeling that we, we need to have from time to time. I know we don't always feel that about everything, but sometimes you just look at somebody you love or a, a beautiful sunset or... Um, some other part of creation, or if you're in God's word and you're reading, there should be time where you just go, wow, God, you're, you're amazing. And then Isaiah calls him a counselor, a wonderful counselor. Jesus gives great advice. We can trust Jesus' counsel. And a lot of that counsel comes from God's word. It comes from the things that have been written down in this book. But we also have this active relationship with God. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. The Spirit of Christ, the Bible says. And I, I wonder how often I do things and I don't ask if it's a good idea or not. And I feel like God probably wants me to. I know there have been many times in my life where I have. Hey, I'm thinking about this. What, what should I do? And God answers those questions. He, he answers in different ways. He answers through his word. He answers through the just comments from friends. I'll be listening to a podcast and it'll just happen to bring up the exact same thing I was questioning. But God leads and guides. Jesus is a wise counselor and the way that he wants us to live our lives is the best way 
Isaiah says, he will be called mighty God. The Messiah is going to be more than the best that we have to offer. It's easy for us to, when we, when we think about heroes, when we think about um, great leaders, when we think about men and women who need to rise to the occasion and come up and fulfill a role either in, in government or in society or in the church or whatever the, f- the field, it's easy to think of like who would be exceptional people. But Isaiah says exceptional people aren't good enough. The problems with humanity, the brokenness, the crookedness, the sin that we find ourselves in, they just can't be fixed by the very best we have to offer. Something better, someone better. And he says the Messiah will be the mighty God, the powerful God. The, way, the reason that things are broken in our world is because people are broken. I am broken and it messes up my own, my thought life, the things I say. It messes up the relationships I have with people. And people build systems and systems become broken. And there's injustice and war and violence. And Isaiah says the one that's going to come to fix it is going to be bigger and stronger than that. He says, he will be the eternal father. And this is kind of odd because we're talking about God the son here, but he's called the eternal father. And and the reason he's called that is is Isaiah is using a Hebrew metaphor. Um, The father of something is the source of that thing. And, And so he's saying, Jesus is the source of eternity. He is the One from the beginning. Jesus would say, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I think that should be comforting for us because as Jesus is that great, wonderful counselor, we have to be able to trust him. This is the same problem that Ahaz had. He saw the enemies of Judah coming and he didn't trust that God would take care of it. But Isaiah says the Messiah he will have a bird's eye view of all of history, of all of time. Are we people that trust that he has the plan? Even though we don't see the plan, and we don't even always understand the steps. I watch a YouTube channel um, from a guy in Oregon. He's a woodworker, and he makes segmented bowls. And if you don't know what a segmented bowl is, it's, it's a wooden bowl that looks like a checkerboard kind of all the way around it. And the way he makes them is just kind of mind-blowing. I kind of get it now, but the first few videos I watched of him making them, you know, you take the pieces of wood and then you cut them a certain way and then you have to make these angles and make these rings and then you make these other rings. And, and halfway through the process, I'm going... I don't think that's going to turn into the thing that you showed me at the beginning that you said you're making. Because I just cannot figure out how you're going to do this. But then he takes all that and he cuts it a certain way and he moves it around and sends it through the bandsaw and then puts it on the lathe and 15 minutes in, like, yeah, that's the bowl. But 
He had the plan. He knew the steps, and he, from start to finish, made it happen. And as an outsider, I was just going like, I don't, I don't know how this even works. And sometimes that's the way I feel in my own life. Is like, I don't have the plan. I don't even know what the steps are. And God says, well, there's the next step. And I go, are you sure? Because it really doesn't seem like that's going the right direction. And do we trust that he is over eternity and sees the end from the beginning and knows exactly what needs to happen next? Isaiah calls him the prince of peace. The ruler who brings peace. This is a major mark of Jesus' life. The idea that um, that God is a bringer of peace and rest. And this is hard for us because we live in a culture of war and violence. Everything about our culture just screams confrontation and adversaries and violence and um, military might and getting your own way and standing up for your rights and um, in business it's just a dog-eat-dog world and, and all of these things that our culture values and Jesus comes as the prince of peace. Earlier in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4, he says that when the kingdom of God comes People will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. And I love that, that that someday all of the military machinery of the world will be rebuilt into farming equipment. And that says, on on its surface, it's this idea of getting rid of war. But peace is so much more than that. If you think about if you think about this idea that these, these machines that are used to kill people will be turned into machines that are used to feed people. Peace isn't just about like not fighting anymore. I mean, the, the idea of, uh, I grew up when I was young, we were having a cold war with Russia or with the USSR. And there wasn't like, there weren't tanks going over the border and missiles being fired, so there was kind of peace. And even now, there are many nations, China, that we are at peace with, where we don't actively attack each other. But the imagery of the f- instrument of violence being turned into the farming tool says it's not just about the absence of war, it's about the cultivation of peace. It's about farming and food production. We see this in Jesus' own life. He, he not only doesn't attack his enemies, he eats with them. He shares a meal with them. He's accused constantly of eating with sinners. And if you knew who this person was, you wouldn't eat with them. Because the meal is this amazing example of what peace is. People who gather together to break bread and share a meal together are at peace. They are looking out for one another's welfare. And the church should be marked by this kind of proactive peace. There's this story that I love this. It's from the second century. Uh, It's a letter written by a man named uh, Mathetes to another man named, uh, I think it's Diogenetus. 
Again, old Greek names are great for pets. <laughs> um, but anyway, he writes, neither one of these men are Christians, and he writes this letter about Christians. And one of the things he says in his letter is they have a common table, but not a common bed. And this is pretty crazy for the Roman world that he's living in because sexual promiscuity was all over the place. You would sleep with anyone and everyone. People of different races and different nationalities and different social classes didn't matter. But you would never eat with people outside of your social class. A a rich landowner would never eat with a slave. They would, men and women wouldn't eat together and different nationalities wouldn't eat together because you would be soiled by sharing a meal with someone who wasn't your equal. And the Christians completely flipped this upside down. They had very rigorous views on purity, but they opened their meals up to everyone. Slaves and masters, men and women, Greeks and Jews would all gather together for a meal. And it just, this guy Mathetus is kind of blown away by this. He almost, he, he accuses them almost of being promiscuous in their hospitality. And I love that, that this is, this should be a mark of the church, not just an absence of war. Like we aren't just a people that go, we don't hate people but we actively pursue peace. We invite people into our homes. We, tomorrow night, we're inviting the neighborhood over to have dinner with us after church. And we should be people that are moving towards peace because we follow the Prince of Peace. Then Isaiah says, the dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. Jesus isn't a local ruler. He lays claim to the whole earth. It doesn't matter who you are, when you've lived, what what nation you have been born in. The gospel, the good news about Jesus goes out to the whole world. And then Isaiah says, the zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. This is going to be God's doing. The Messiah is going to come and it's going to be God that does it. We see this um, in, in Mary, in the gospel of Luke, when when the angel comes to Mary and says, you're going to have a baby, and she goes, that's not possible. How's that going to work? And the angel says, God is going to do it. And this is, this is, always, this is always something that's hard for me because I can get behind very easily that God is going to give me an ability to do things. Or God is going to expect me to get something done. Or God is going to put a team of people together and we're going to go out and make it happen. But to be in a frame of mind that says, no, I'm I'm not going to do any of this. God is going to do all of it. 
God is often working like that. There's many stories in the Bible. One of them is um, this, there's a story about a man named Gideon. And he is told to go out to war. And he has this big army. And God says, the army's too big. Send some of them home. And he's, he whittles them down from thousands and thousands of men down to 300. And he says, okay, now, now the army is small enough so that when you win this battle, everyone will know that you had nothing to do with it. And I think that's the way God wants to work because he wants his reputation to be that he takes care of his people. And, and I hope that that's the reputation that we have as a church, that, that people look at Revelation Church and they go like, man, I don't know, God must be doing something because there's no other explanation for it. And so, as we close, I think the thing that I just kind of want to leave us with this morning is, is, is God doing something either in our body, in your own life, that he just wants to do? And, and you're, you're, maybe you're getting in the way. Maybe we're getting in the way of that. And maybe it's, maybe it's pride that's getting in the way of that. I mean, that's, that's what was going on with Ahaz. He, he wanted to appear holy. He wanted to appear in control. He wanted to feel like he had it all figured out and he didn't really need God. He had that mask on for the benefit of other people. And sometimes I think we wear that same mask where we're just going to take care of it. We're going to get it done. We're going to push through. No, I don't need help. Not, I don't, this isn't something I need to pray about. I've got my own set of resources that I'll just take care of it. And I wonder if there's something in our lives in, that, that God's saying, no, I don't want you to do this. I don't want you to move. I don't want you to figure it out on your own. I want you to sit and wait and watch me do something that's bigger and better than anything you could possibly do. So that when it happens, people will go, wow, God did something great. Not Zach did something great. And I would encourage all of us, if, there's, if that is happening, if that's, if that's something rattling around inside you, that, that you be honest with the people in your community. If you're part of a community group, if you have Christian brothers and sisters in your life, say, hey, this is what's going on in my life right now. This is what I think God is saying, or I'm confused about this. I need wisdom. Don't, don't wear a mask, especially... Especially not in, in this season where we have the opportunity to celebrate the, the beginning of this rescue plan that God initiates all by himself. He says, you people can't figure it out. You do not have the power, the ability to get it done. So I'm going to do it for you. 
and I'm going to do it right, and I'm going to get the credit for it. That's the big plan when Jesus comes, and I think it's probably the small plan in each one of our lives individually. So we're going we're gonna to sing a little bit, and the communion table is open. This is a this is a far cry from the best way to do a meal together. We'll do a much better job of a meal together tomorrow night. But it is a symbol of that meal that Jesus shared with his best friends the night that he was betrayed. And he told his, his disciples, this bread symbolizes my body, my, my body broken for you, and this cup symbolizes my blood. The blood of the new covenant, this new arrangement between God and people where he will be our God and we will be his people free from the bondage of sin by his death and resurrection. And I just invite you to come up and and take the communion um, bread and and the cup as you feel led. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.